0: Well, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would impact our lives tonight, that it would go deep into our hearts, and uh, that we would receive what you want to say to us, that we would uh, draw close to you through it, and that you would be exalted as we worship you by the honor that we give to it. So have your way with us, and it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight we find ourselves... Overviewing the book of Luke and we're marching our way through the Bible in overview fashion We started Genesis first week of January Uh, We are shooting for Revelation in the last week of December But uh, we'll see it'd be a little bit ambitious and so it may happen it may not Uh, But we'll see Uh, but anyways tonight we find ourselves in the book of Luke And Luke is the third of what's called the synoptic gospels And that just is a fancy word. It means seen together. And so there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a very uh, very similar structure, very similar form. But it's the same story told by three different people. And so we do see different perspectives through them. And then John is written a little bit later in time. As John, the disciple from the Gospels, is getting older. There's some things that he wanted to make sure... Uh, were put down so the church could remember them. And, and so we're, it's just a sort of a different look of, hey, let's, let's finish out the picture. Um, so, you know, you could ask yourselves, well, why, why do it that way? Why not just line up, you know, here's fact one about Jesus, here's fact two, here's fact three, fact four, and we could just, you know, you could string it out in a very straight historical narrative. But I think, I heard I was listening to a pastor this week, he said, think of it like, if someone was describing your face or drawing a picture or a portrait of you, and they could list, you know, the, the numerical factors of well, this person has a nose, and well, he actually has a nose that stands a ratio of, you know, three to one from the peak to the width, and uh, the left side's a little wider than the right, and you know, he's aging, so it will keep getting bigger. Uh, or they could take a couple different pictures. You know, and you could get a portrait from the front, and a portrait from the left side, and the right side. And what you'd have is a much, you'd have a much more developed picture in your mind of what the person looks like. Or what, you know, a better representation just because, and a better appreciation for the individual. Because you've seen it from different angles. It's the same person, but it's different pictures just to help see like, Oh, there's something there that that I notice because of the angle or the, the lighting or whatever else. And so the Gospels are giving us that. They're giving us uh, the same picture of Jesus Christ. They're not contradicting. It's not like you know one is a totally different version. They're complementary. They're not contradictory. And so we will see parts in one and not in another, but that's not because that one is right and one is wrong. It's because they're two different perspectives who are describing the same thing From different perspectives, different views, maybe even uh, depending on how they were, you know, how close they were to the event, whether they were on the edge of the crowd or up close to Jesus when it happened. And so Luke uh, just opens up and he, Luke writes, uh, just, he gets to the point. Chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out to you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Luke opens up and he says, you know what? Other guys are are writing down what happened in the life of Jesus Christ. And so I'm compiling a historical narrative. I've he says, I've uh, investigated everything carefully from the beginning, and I'm going to write it out in consecutive order. And so Luke is giving us a, he is right out of the gate saying, I'm going to give you a historical understanding of who Jesus is. And this is a historian's approach. Luke is super thorough. Uh, Luke is, uh, he just, he goes through, you can read it even, and if you break it down in, in the original languages, you can tell that there's parts where Luke is—he's interviewed people and observed different things. And he's compiled a very tight historical document. I've heard it said that Luke uh, really is written almost like a legal brief. Like he's giving someone a, a preparation for, here's what you need to know about the case of Christianity. And um, we don't know who this guy is that he's writing it to. He says, I'm writing it to you, most excellent Theophilus. We have no reference anywhere of who Theophilus is. And so some people say he might have been a patron who was helping pay for uh, Luke's expenses or pay for, really, Luke as a companion of Paul's, pay for the Apostle Paul's traveling expenses. He might have just been somebody they knew that wanted to better understand the gospel. But uh, it is interesting, the name Theophilus means either Theo means God and the you know philosopher phileo means love and so the name theophilus really means either a lover of god or loved of god and so this book is written to an individual presumably named theophilus but it's also written to the lovers of god and to those who are loved by god so who's this book written to it's written to every single one of us and so luke is going to start in chronological order and he says all right let's go let's go right from the beginning And so he gives us the whole story of the birth of Christ. Um, Luke, incidentally, is the longest of the Gospels. We said last week Mark was the shortest. Uh, What Mark does in 10 verses, Luke does in 150. And he gives us the background and the context and the situation. He wants to make sure we're fully aware of what's going on. And so we get to see the birth of Christ. We get to see the birth of John the Baptist, who was the... The prophet to prepare the way for Jesus and so we see the story of uh, really they both had a miraculous birth John was born to parents who were far too old to have children Jesus Christ was born to a woman who had, uh, had was still a virgin and so they're both miraculous and we get the story of both of them they both have a uh they both get visited by an angel and the angel describes to them what's gonna happen we get to see it's really cool we get to see two messages from the Lord within the span of, of a chapter And we get to see two different responses to the Lord. Because Zechariah is in the temple serving the Lord, and an angel comes to him and says, Zechariah, I have got a message for you from God. And your prayer's been answered, and you're going to have a son. And you've got to wonder, when did Zechariah stop praying that prayer? Like, what, you know, does he have to go back in his mind? Like, which prayer? Because he's an old man. He says he's extremely old. Um, The King James Version says that he was well stricken in years he wasn't just like struck with years he was well struck with years and so he's not gonna have a kid anytime soon his wife is certainly not gonna have a child And the angel comes and says you're gonna have a son and Zechariah says um yeah he says, how will I know this for certain in verse 18 for I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years what do you think about that angel I'm old my wife's old I know how biology works you maybe you're an angel you don't understand you know the physical side of things my wife's not having a baby and the angel said in verse 19 i am gabriel who stands in the presence of god and i've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news and behold you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in the proper time Zechariah doesn't believe it and the angel says fine i will demonstrate a sign you cannot talk until your wife has the baby So Zechariah gets nine months to think about not talking too quickly to an angel. And bear in mind who he's talking to. He says, the angel says, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Every time in the Old Testament somebody comes in contact with the presence of God, they fall down. Right? Gabriel says, I can stand up in God's presence. This is a holy dude. This is a powerful guy. And Zechariah has the audacity to say, more or less, prove it. And he says, okay, fine. Fine. I will prove it. And so then Gabriel goes to Mary. And he says, Mary, you're going to have a child. And Mary says, how's that going to work? And we can't really read the emotion in it from the text, but contextually, based on Gabriel's response, it's totally different than Zechariah's. Mary's question is much more, um, I really don't know how that's going to work. Could you help me understand? Whereas Zechariah's is much more, uh, you're wrong. And so the angel explains, no, you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit Himself is going to uh, overshadow you, and you're going to give birth to a child without ever intimately knowing a man. And so uh, we get to see just two messages from God and two responses, and we always have, you know, the Bible loves to give us contrasts and to give us that option to say, like, oh, look, there's two examples. Which one would you like to do? When the Lord speaks to you, what are you going to do? You can say, yeah, right, or you can say, I want to walk in obedience. Could you help me understand, or could you give me the courage to obey, or could you, you know, I'm I'm trying to figure this out. Would you bear with me? And the Lord is incredibly gracious in that context. So we get the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke spends about three and a half years going through that up until the point where Jesus is baptized and he begins his ministry. And so then Luke four is really the public ministry of Jesus. Luke four onward. Um, and so what we're going to do tonight as we're, as we're trying to kind of overview the book is we spent a good bit of time in Matthew two weeks ago looking at the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And last week we tried to spend some time looking at the miracles. Um, but Luke, as he's writing this, because he's writing these, he's, he's an investigator. So he's gone to all these people and he's, you know, tell me about what you know of Jesus Christ. Tell me what you know. Tell me what you saw. And so he's compiling all these accounts so we get more Like eyewitness testimony from Luke, even though Luke wasn't necessarily there. We get more eyewitness testimony through the book of Luke than the other other Gospels. And so one of the things we get is just a ton of dialogue from Jesus, a ton of teachings of Jesus. Whereas Luke would go to people, they'd say, you know, I remember when he taught us this thing, and he taught it to us this way. I remember he was having this conversation with this person. And so Luke gives us a ton of the teachings of Jesus. And specifically, Jesus taught in parables very often, And uh, a parable is, you know, in essence, it's a story with a meaning. And so tonight, uh, I kind of want us to take a little bit of time since Luke gives us so many of those and just try and look at a couple of them specifically to try and see how they apply to our lives and what we're looking at overall. So in chapter 8, if you want to just read along, we're going to probably wind up reading a couple sizable chunks tonight. So um, if you want to, you're welcome to turn there. Chapter 8, verse 4. It says, When a large crowd was coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up, and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he would tell these parables or these stories, and then they'd say, Okay, if you've got ears to hear, listen up. And verse 9, his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is imperable, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Jesus is an incredibly insightful judge of human character. He's God, he, he understands The human condition better than anybody else. And so he understands that there are different responses to the truth of the gospel. And so what he did in his earthly ministry is he would package the truths that he was trying to convey into parables. And he did it for a couple reasons. And basically it divides up, it divides a crowd, okay? If you have no interest in hearing anything that Jesus is saying, and you are, you know, you're there out of obligation, you're there because somebody made you come, whatever, and you're just trying to get them to to be, get off your back, you can listen to a story and say, okay, whatever. It was a nice story. If you're like passively interested in Jesus, you can listen to his parables and say, you yeah, know, there's some stuff to chew on there. i'm You know, I'll, I'll think about that. And then as time goes on, if you draw closer to the Lord, those stories, because they're in the format of a story, will stay with you and you'll be able to better say, wait a second. I bet he was trying to say this. But there's also this point where he leaves it for the person who is actively trying to follow him. Where they say, okay, wait a second. He, didn't, he is not just telling us a story about seed and dirt here. There's something going on that the Lord is trying to convey. And so in the parable, just by telling the parable, he's able to basically, you know, people who have no interest, he can give them as much as they want and no more. People who are casually interested, but aren't committing, he's not turning them off, but he's <clears throat> imparting a truth that's going to stick with them. And the people who seriously want to know him hear that story and say, wait a second, there's more to this. And then dig in deeper and go further. <clears throat> so his disciples hear this parable and they say, okay, wait, there's, hold on a second. What's this parable really about? And so he explains it to them. Verse 11, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. So some people are just like hard-packed dirt. And the word of God hits their life and bounces right off. And it's like, nothing happened. And verse 13, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while. And in time, temptation fall away. There are some people who just boom, hear the gospel, man, I'm all in. 110%. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be there as much as I can. I'm going to dig into the Lord until Tuesday, right? And then something happens. Something comes up and, yeah, I meant to be committed, but, uh, yeah, this is a little harder than it, than it looks, right? This is like, you know, diet Christianity, right? Anybody can work out great for like two weeks, or a week and a half, or whatever. Anybody can make a New Year's resolution. Not too many people make it to July on a New Year's resolution. And so there are people like that with the Word of God. Verse 14, The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. There are a ton of people who know the Word of God, who know the Gospel, who understand who Jesus is, and what he did for them. But man, they are just busy. How are you doing? I'm busy. We love being busy, right? And you can be so busy being busy that you miss out on everything worthwhile in life. And and I like that he specifies it's the worries and the riches and the pleasures, the good stuff and the bad stuff. Some of us obsess over the good things that we're going to get or going to try to get. Some of us obsess over the bad things that we're worried we're going to get or trying not to get. And either way, we can devote so much of our life to that that we miss out on what the Word of God is trying to say to our lives. And we just totally, you know, gee, I would commit more, I would come more, I would do more, whatever. But man, I've got obligations, I've got family, I've got all these different things, man. I'm, it's you know, it's a full-time job keeping up with whoever it is that I'm keeping up with. And I would love to come to church. I'd love to serve Jesus more once I'm retired or once I'm, you know, married or not married or the kids are out of the house or whatever it is. You know, I would love to serve Jesus more at X point in my life. That brings no fruit, right? But then, verse 15, the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So Jesus here is describing a very, really basic principle, but you can dig into this forever. So take the word of God, it's like the sea. All right, it is gonna impact different people in different ways. All right, got it. But we go a little, can we go a little deeper in that? Well, yeah, because anybody who's raised a garden knows that soil is not static right? Good soil does not stay good soil. Bad soil does not have to stay bad soil. Hard soil can get plowed up. Rocky soil can get sifted out. Weedy soil can get weeded, right? Uh, and good soil can go bad, or it can become more and more productive. And so, uh, you know, so he's, he's kind of telling this story, and it then is left open-ended, like, well, so what are you? What is your heart? What's your heart's response to the Word of God? What are you doing with the Word of God? Right? You get to hear it on Wednesday nights. You get to hear it on Sunday mornings. What are you doing with it in your own life privately? What are you doing with it? You know, how are you digesting it? Are you in a devotional type of life? Or are you in a study type of life where you're actually trying to grow in the Word of God? And so the, the parable leaves it that way, which means we need to all do a bit of self-reflection and say, okay, wait a second. Am I bearing fruit? And sometimes... It doesn't necessarily look like it you know he says they bear fruit with perseverance fruit does not spontaneously generate on trees but sometimes we've got some rocks in our life they need to get weeded out sometimes we've got some thorns in our life rocks that need to get sifted out weeds that need to get weeded out sometimes you've got a patch of life that's just concrete and you need a jackhammer and a plow to get it out of there and get some dirt in right but bear in mind as it pertains to our own hearts and as it pertains to the hearts of the people we're around nobody no soil ever has to be permanently in that state. So don't take anything that you've been given for granted and don't write anyone else off prematurely. Right? Don't say, oh, that person's hard, hard. That person's just, they're hard. Not even worth throwing the seed out. That person is so rocky. They are so shallow. They are so flaky. It is not worth my time. That person is so distracted. Oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe it. Right? Well, don't get distracted talking about the distracted people. But, um, but also, if you're bearing fruit in your life, you know what? Great soil. Every once in a while, you still find a rock. You chuck it out. Weeds always start to come up. You got to pull them out. And good soil requires maintenance. So if you're in a season of life where you're bearing fruit and your soil is good, that's fantastic. Praise the Lord. But don't then sit back and rest on that. Move forward in that, right? So these are the kind of parables that, that Jesus gives in chapter 10. We get this parable that Luke gives us that none of the other Gospels have. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of the Gospels have a lot of overlap. uh, But there's these pockets in each one of them where there's just like this one little thing that somebody stuck in. And you try and imagine what Christianity would be like without it. And it's like, I have no idea. Because they've become so central to our understanding of the heart of God. And so in chapter 10... Verse 25. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test. It's not like a legal lawyer. This is like a man who was an expert in the Old Testament. And he said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? You're an expert. How does it read to you? Verse 27. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So, this guy gets the answer right, technically. And, and there's a lot of people who can technically get the answers right and totally miss the whole point. But he says, What do you need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, What do you think? He says, Well, the law says I need to love God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength, and I need to love my neighbor to the same extent that I love my own self. And Jesus says, Bingo! But what's this lawyer know? He knows that that is impossible, right? How many of us have ever loved God with all of our heart or all of our strength? That's pretty sizable. But let's cut it down just like a little bit. What if, you know, could you love a person pretty well? Yeah, maybe. So who's our neighbor? Because if our neighbor is like your best friend and that's what you got to do to inherit eternal life, then maybe we could kind of get in on a curve, right? So who is my neighbor, Jesus? Answer me that one. And so Jesus replied in verse 30 and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion." And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Now, this story takes a little bit of background context in the Old Testament. So, this guy is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets robbed. Uh, I mean, burglary and violent theft and crime was a very real deal in the ancient world. And uh, so by chance, a priest is going down this road. After this guy is now beaten, he's left for dead, priest is going down, there's a wounded guy there. Well, if he's a Jew, I have an obligation to help him because I'm Jewish and he's Jewish. If he's a Gentile and I help him, that'll make me ceremonially unclean. But it says they stripped him naked, so I can't tell by his clothing. So, you know, we'll just kind of assume, he, yeah, he, he kind of looks foreign. We'll just say he's foreign. priest goes on. Levi Levite comes behind them. Well, the Levite, as a status position, uh, was sort of inferior to the priest. So, well, you know, kind of like, well, my senior pastor just walked past him, right? I mean, I wouldn't want to one-up my pastor for crying out loud. That would be... That'd just be an affront to him and an affront to God. I mean, that would be so insensitive to my pastor. How could I possibly do that? Obviously, he's way more spiritually mature than I am. So uh, if he decided this man must be a foreigner, who am I to stand in the place of him and God, right? I mean, obviously, dude's a foreigner. Let's go to work. Samaritan comes along. Picks the guy up, bandages him, takes him into town. Takes care of him all night long. Pays the innkeeper, says, keep me till he's well. I'll be back in town later. I'll pay you whatever the difference is. Now, put it in context, um, the Jewish people hated the Samaritans with a passion. Uh, The Samaritan people had basically become genetically kind of like half Jewish. And so they had sort of this Jewish identity, but really no real religious identity with the Jewish people. And it was just totally... uh, the Jewish people felt like they were an inferior species, really, is how the Jewish people treated them, and so, uh, so this Samaritan guy stops. Now, uh, I was there's a guy who wrote a book on sort of the cultural context of the parables, and he said, picture it like this: let's say you're in like 1800s, Wild West America, and an Indian is riding down the road, and he sees a cowboy with arrows in his back and he picks him up and takes him into town and bandages him up and takes care of him for the night and then pays the innkeeper in the morning. Now culturally, you know, if the Indian brings John Wayne into town, what's the very natural assumption of the townspeople? This guy just killed John Wayne, right? And, and so, what's, so it, it, it's the equivalent of you know, of the, like, the racial tension that is there is ha- running high in this parable. Okay, this is, a, this is a story that, as Jesus is telling this, the crowd is listening close. Because this, you know, this is the kind of story that just doesn't happen in real life. And if it did, it would be a huge deal. Because Samaritans and Jews don't mix. And the story ends right when the Samaritan leaves. We're not told what happened to the Samaritan. We're not told. You know, I mean, was there a mob outside the hotel? Or was there some sort of riot? We don't know. Jesus leaves the parable open-ended, and then he says to this guy, which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. So Jesus doesn't really answer his question. He says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, that's not really the question, pal. The question is, which one of these three proved that he was a neighbor? I don't really care who is your neighbor. I care who you're going to be a neighbor to. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's challenging this guy. He's saying, you can't, no, you are not going to get graded on a curve in the kingdom of heaven. and You don't get to live this life of just partying with your friends and treating the rest of the world like trash. You go find someone to become a neighbor to. And specifically, you go find the person who hates you. This is not a Jewish person rescuing a Samaritan. This is not a Jewish person being just so magnanimous and, you know what, I just, I'm in a great mood, I love God, my girlfriend said yes when I propose, everything is great, uh, let's just save everybody, right? This is not that. This is a Samaritan man picking up a Jewish person, knowing that if this guy was fully conscious, he would not let me touch him. Right? He's not, he's not saying, oh, that man's my neighbor. He says, I'm going to prove that I'm his neighbor. And so Jesus says... This isn't about who is your neighbor. This is about who do you become a neighbor to. And he also throws in this little commentary that, by the way, being religious is worthless. Being religious without actual uh, action to demonstrate your convictions is worthless. So, uh, so we get, we're watching these parables come through the book of Luke. I, I counted them up. I got to 26. Uh, there's 26 different parables in the book of Luke where there's these little nuggets of truth, And some of them are sort of strung back to back, so they're trying to convey a same point three times in a row to really help us get it. But but Jesus is doing this where he's dropping in these stories where we can say, okay, wait a second. There's the story with a very straightforward truth, but there's also a little bit where we can dig in and say, okay, I think the Lord's saying, you know, he's saying X, but he's saying X and Y. And he's offering us sort of this open-ended invitation of, hey, why don't you dig into what i'm saying why don't you don't just you know read it and skip through yep got through my reading today why don't you take it and dive into it and uh i'm gonna so i'll just i'll say this for whatever it's worth i try to not be the guy who stands up here and tells you all like you know you ought to read this book and listen to this person and you know you've got to go to israel or else you're not really a christian i've never been to israel although i'd like to but uh you know, I don't want to be that guy who's like, well, it isn't a real Christian experience until you've stood on Mount Sinai or whatever, you know. And I try not to like live with this sense of like, oh, you've got to do this and this and this, but you knew that was coming. But there's a book that I would, I would seriously recommend. Um, it's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and it's written by a guy named Ken Bailey, and it's pretty long. It's not like a quick and easy read. Uh, if you read it fast, it means you weren't paying attention. Uh, but Ken Bailey was a European man who lived in the Middle East for about 60 years. And so he has an, he's just got a very in-depth understanding of Middle Eastern culture, uh, but he's still able to relay it in a way that's very understandable to a Western mindset. And so he goes through the Gospels. He spent his whole life studying the Gospels, and he breaks it down culturally and and helps sort of understand like here's what's really going on and here's uh you know here's the context historically where jesus is at where these people are at where the tension would be at politically as he's saying these things and he's not trying to say like here's some sort of new truth about jesus you know he's not trying to unpack the real jesus or something Um, but he's sort of just i think very helpfully articulating here's some cultural context that will give you a lot greater appreciation for what Jesus is actually saying. And so I just throw that out. It's like 20 bucks, 25 bucks on Amazon. Um, it's like 300 pages. So it's, it's, a little, it's, it's a pretty beefy book, but it's broken down into pretty edible chunks. All right. And so I would really encourage you, if you're going to study the Gospels in depth, pick up a copy of it. Um, but anyways, as we're moving on through the parables... One of the most famous parables in Luke is the parable of the prodigal sons. And so in verse 11, Jesus is going through a handful of teachings here. And uh, he said in verse 11, a man had two sons. The younger of them, did I say chapter 15? Chapter 15, verse 11. In the book of Luke, in the Bible. Hopefully you're in the Bible. Um, Chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, "'Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me.' So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine." So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look. For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. Now this passage has been unpacked all over the place. There are multiple books written on this passage um, so we are not gonna, it it would be impossible for us to totally unpack this but uh, what can I say? Let's go for it. So he says a man had two sons and the younger one said dad give me the portion of my inheritance. And what he's not saying is dad can I have five bucks? He's saying dad I want the will read out right now. I want the state passed out basically let's just live like you're dead. That would make my life really good right now. Could I just have life as if you're dead and I get my half of all the money? And the dad said, and at this point, culturally, that's the point at which the dad can say, you are not my son. You are for all practical purposes dead to me. Leave right now, stranger. And the father would have every right to drive the son out. The son would, could spend the rest of his life in poverty for that, for that claim. And the father instead says, Okay. If you want it that badly, you can have it. And the sun goes out. He takes his money and leaves. And then he says he wastes it all. He wastes it all. He spends it all on loose living. As some guy once said, use your imagination, but don't use too much of it. Um, Now when he spent everything, there's a severe famine. Spend your money. Bad times come. All your friends who you thought were your friends were really only your money's friends. And so your friends are gone. Your money's gone. What are you going to do? He goes to work, he's, he's going to find anybody who will pl- employ him, and he finds a guy who's willing to let him feed pigs. And again, put it in its cultural context, this is a Jewish person. Feeding pigs is uh, about the most depraved job that a Jewish person could take. And so, you know, so really, in essence, you can sort of infer, he's not just working a low job, he's working for a very racist employer. And he's so hungry because he's not getting fed anything that if his stomach could handle it, he would eat what the pigs are eating, but he can't physically digest it, just like we can't digest hay, right? And then he says, you know, this is ridiculous. I, I am wasting my life. I, this is stupid. And uh, I'm going to go back to my dad. And I know I don't deserve a place in the inheritance anymore. I can't even, I forfeited every right to try and be his son or to have a claim on his money. So I'm just going to ask him if he would like take me in as an employee. And, uh, and the father sees him, runs, kisses him, says, my son is back. He says, I am, he doesn't let him get to the point of, no, I will not call you my employee. You are my son and we are going to celebrate the fact that you're back. All right. So where's, where's, where's this parable going. He's telling a story. He's giving us an example and an illustration of the person who has been given the blessings of God and says, I don't want to. I don't want to, right? I want all the fun that God can possibly have in this life, but I want no responsibility to the Lord. And what happens to that? Sooner or later in every life, that will leave you empty. That will leave you dry. Sooner or later, some people can ride that for a really long time. But sooner or later, it leaves you dry. And this guy says, you know what, I'm out. I'm I'm, I'm done. I'm empty. And so he goes back to his father. I heard a pastor say, this is the only time that we see God in a hurry. And that's running back to his son, right? And so he says, he's running back to him to say, I still love you. You are still in my family. Because repentance is always an option for the person who's walked away from the Lord. For the person who has backslidden however far for however long, repentance is always an option. Right? As long as you're alive, you can repent. And so, so there's this great story here. And we call it the parable of the prodigal son. But really, it's the parable of the prodigal sons. Because what happens? The father throws this party for his youngest son. And the oldest son comes in from work. The oldest son has been doing the will of his father. And in this parable, the father is, is really illustrating God himself. The older son has been doing the will of God. He's been doing God's work. And he comes in. And he says, what's going on? They say, your rebel brother came back. It's awesome. He's back in the family of God. And he becomes angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered his father and said, look. Now, again, culturally, it's pretty flagrant affront to your father to say, I wish you were dead. But... Culturally, to tell your dad, look, in this context, is pretty much the same thing, right? Look, you know, I mean, you know what disrespect looks like. I don't need to impersonate it. But um, his answer right here is every bit as bad as the younger son's. He says, look, I've been serving you for years. I've never neglected a command of yours. You've never even given me a young goat. I have been doing everything you've asked of me, and you've never once demonstrated that you're good to me. Right. I've been working my tail end off here and what have I gotten for it? Nothing. Thank you very much. And the father says, "You know what? You've always been with me. And all that's mine is yours." Does that count for anything? The son is bitter because he's been doing the work of God and he doesn't feel like God appreciates all he's been doing and God says, and and all of a sudden this, you know, this punk kid comes back and we all act like it's a big deal. And the Father, you know, in the the role of God, says, well, you've had a relationship with me for all these years. We've been together. Does that count for anything? Everything I have is yours, right? And sometimes we can look at this, you know, especially if you've grown up as a Christian, you've grown up in the church, you knew all the Bible stories, you were in Sunday school, you can look and be like, for crying out loud, I have been doing all the right things for all of my life. And what did I get for it? Nothing. And the Lord says, well... I don't know. We've been together the whole time. I thought that was pretty good. You've had all the blessings that are available to you through Jesus Christ. I thought that was a pretty good deal. Right? And and what's interesting, Jesus is telling the story um, to Pharisees and scribes. He's telling the story to religious elite. And he ends the story right there. We know what happened to the younger son. The story does not tell us what happens to the older son. It's open-ended. What happens? Because he's leaving it open for us. You know, hey, <clears throat> where are you at with the Lord? The Lord is celebrating. You know, there's a, God is doing a work. People are coming to know the Lord. Are you excited about that? Or are you resentful that you don't get to experience everything that you think God owes you? What are you going to do about it? There's a party going on that the Lord is throwing. And, and far too often as Christians, we can get ticked off and disillusioned with the Lord... And said, I'm not going. If God wants to talk to me, he's going to have to come out here and talk to me. But I'm not going in there. And the Lord graciously comes out in this parable and he's pleading with the older son. He's pleading with us. Hey, be a part of the celebration. Celebrate what God is doing. But the story ends. What are you going to do about it? He's, he's leaving it open-ended for each one of us. We all have to come to that point of what am I going to do with the Lord? Because we can feel like God's never even given me a goat right? I wouldn't, you know, some people that's a, that's a good thing. Um, I'd pre- prefer the calf, but you know, whatever. Uh, God's never even given me a goat. I've been serving you for years. And, and God says, you've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. Everything I have is yours. We have the fullness of Jesus Christ in our lives. We have the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the promise of eternal life and resurrection. We have fellowship with God the Father. That's a pretty good bargain, right? What do we do for it? Nothing. Nothing. And so, so bear in mind, ask yourselves, where are you? Are you outside the house or are you inside celebrating? And if you're the younger son, come home, right? You do not have to go all the way to the bottom. You can save yourself a lot of pain and heartache by saying, this is not going to be worth it. So um, we're, kinda, we're wrapping up for the night, don't worry. Some of you guys are worrying. Don't worry. Um, But Luke gives us all these parables. And he's trying to encourage us, remind us, and and make us aware of this is the ministry of Jesus Christ. He came to earth to, yes, very much to die for our sins and raise us to life. and, And be raised to life so that he could raise us to life. But along the way, he wanted to equip us to live this life. And so he imparted the wisdom of God to us, right? So we have all these accounts. And then one of the last stories in the book of Luke, it's not a parable, but it's, uh, it's one of these things that only Luke records, and it's incredibly powerful, is after the death of Jesus, and then three days later, after the resurrection, there's uh, the women had gone to the tomb. It was empty. They told the disciples Everybody, you know, they hadn't really been paying attention to what the Lord was saying. And so they're not quite sure what this all means. And we're really confused. And uh, in verse 13, Behold, two of them, that's two two disciples of Jesus, not two of the twelve, but just two followers of Jesus, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing and Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him and he said to them what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you walk as you're walking and they stood still looking sad one of them named cleopas answered and said to him are you the only one visiting jerusalem who's unaware of the things which have happened here in these days which incidentally he was actually the only one in jerusalem who knew what had been happening those days and he said to them what things And he said to him, "...the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came, seeing that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive." Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the woman also had said, but him they did not see. Jesus says, what's going on? They say, well, there was this guy, Jesus, who was a prophet. We were hoping he was the Messiah, but he it must not have been because he died. But there's kind of just some weird stuff going on. A lot of rumors are spreading around. It doesn't make any sense. We're depressed. And verse 25, he said to them, oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Jesus says, are you guys kidding me? You don't know that your Messiah is going to have to suffer? It has been in your Bible for thousands of years. And so he starts, he says, let's just, let's just go back to the beginning, guys. Okay, let's start with Moses. So where'd he go? He went to Genesis. Jesus Christ, in explaining who Jesus Christ was and is, went to Genesis and went to all the prophets. He went through the Old Testament. We've just spent six months as a church going through the Old Testament. Why? Because Jesus Christ is revealed in them. And in the Old Testament, we understand the nature and the character of Jesus Christ, and then it's more fully revealed in the New Testament. But it's not something new in the New Testament. It's something that's more complete in the New Testament. And so he's going through the word with them for seven miles, right? So whatever, two hours and some change. For two hours, Jesus Christ is explaining to these guys about who Jesus Christ is. And they approached the village where they were going, verse 28. And he acted as though he were going further, but they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. That's Peter. They began to relate their experiences on the road, and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. So, Jesus explains him the word of God, and then he opens their eyes to let everything that he's been saying click into place. And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, wait a second. Right? I was, you know, I was stirred while he was talking, but all of a sudden, he opened my eyes, and now it all makes sense. And so then they go back to the, the other disciples, and then while they're all there, Jesus appears to them. And... Uh, kind of says, guys, what's, you know, really the same deal? What's your problem? I told you this was going to happen. And verse 44, 44. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, what happens? Jesus comes and he says, Listen, these are the things that were written about me. In Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. That covers the entire Old Testament. Right? Moses and the history, the prophets... The Psalms, basically, it was all talking about Jesus Christ. And then, verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Do you want to know Jesus Christ? Do you want to know who he is? Luke set out to write this account for Theophilus and for all of us to know more fully who Jesus Christ is. How are you going to do that? I love that Luke ends his book this way. How do you understand? How do you know Jesus Christ? You're going to know it by two ways. You're going to know it by the word of God. The scriptures are declaring the glory of who Jesus is. But if you read the scriptures with the eyes of man, it makes no sense. It's like the parables. If you read them like, yeah, I read that once as a college assignment, you know, uh, 30 years ago. That's not going to do you anything. That's an intellectual exercise that accomplishes nothing. But if you read the scripture and you say, wait a second, there's something else going on here. My heart is being stirred. Then what needs to happen? Well, then you need God himself to open up your eyes. And he will, because he has promised that if you come to the word wanting to hear him speak, he says, if if you ask, it will be given to you. If you seek, you will find. If you are looking for guidance in your life from the word of God, you will find it, if you're expecting it. So come to the Word of God. If you want to know who Jesus Christ is, He is in the entire thing, right? He's in Moses. He's in the Psalms. He's in the Prophets. He's in the New Testament. The whole thing is screaming His name. So you speak in the Word and you ask the Spirit of God to open your eyes and you can know Jesus Christ. Not just know about Him. Not just know of Him. You can know Him. That's what Luke's giving us, right? So, there we go. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be transformed by your word, that we would let it impact us, work in our hearts, and change our lives. I pray that you would help us to dig deeply into it. I pray that you would just... uh, Just go before us, God. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice, for his resurrection. Thank you that he ripped back the veil of death on the world, that we can have the promise of life, that we can stand in that and know that that we exist in in a level of fullness that we couldn't even imagine before. So, God, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. We pray that you would... Be glorified in our midst and have your way in our hearts. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray, amen.